it's Wednesday night sometime after five o'clock Pacific time, which means I'm watching a squirrel eat dinner. Hello, I'm Noah Nelson. I am watching a squirrel eat dinner, but that is not what this show is. This show is the No Persinium Review Crew. Uh, each week, we gather the crew in the Discord to talk about all the stuff they've been seeing and experiencing. I mean, not all of the crew, like a few members of the crew and uh we hear from them we talk about what's working what's not working people make a case for what should be pick of the week and then we go on to the regular show and one of the people you're hearing tonight will uh have the pick of the week uh this week uh we were supposed to have daniel look uh our denver correspondent as one of the members of the crew but we were having technical issues uh, that we could not sort out in a reasonable time. So uh, we will have Danielle on another edition of the show. And it's a shame because I really wanted to hear about her, her bit. But we have tonight joining me are our East Coast curator. Blake Weil. Good to see you all today. And our Chicago curator. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick McLean. And for those of you who are hanging out with us in the Discord, we will open the floor up at the end of the formal bit, which should take us about, I want to say, like 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, so well, stick around and we'll love to hear from you. And Yeah, uh, as long as we don't talk about baseball or Star Wars <laughs> or we try to undo some like systemic or massive issue in the industry. Yeah, you know, so long as we don't get into it, um, which, you know. Like I said, that's why three of us, 40 minutes, because we'll probably try to get into it. Um, I believe that our plan called for Patrick to go first. Patrick, what uh, what are you talking about this week? Yeah, well, I'm going to kind of um, change it up a little bit this week. I'm going to actually be talking about a conference I attended. I had the great pleasure this weekend, particularly um, Sunday the 22nd and Monday the 23rd here of August of attending Recon, uh, the um, escape room conference online here in Discord. This was, of course, done by our good friends at Room Escape Artists, who have been covering the scene of escape rooms for a very long time. As uh, far as I know, I... I consider them to be kind of the premier site. They're always producing great content uh, and reviewing pieces all over the world. I, I think, have they been to every continent? I'm not sure. They've definitely been to most of them, but uh, they've too, like we have been trying to kind of build up our immersive community. They have been a really powerful force in building up the escape room industry by both connecting other critics, but more importantly, of course, creators and owners and creating a space where they can collaborate and talk. And so they had their big conference, which once again was uh, a digital and arguably rightfully so with the status of the world we currently find ourselves in still. Uh, and I attended, I would say about eight of the main panels that were open to the general public, which uh, I don't quote me on this, but I think they might be releasing those eventually soon on their YouTube channel. Uh, I feel like you could go see them at one point last year's anyways. Um, uh, it was a really great time. I really love the escape room community because they are so welcoming and uh, and such great collaborators because I feel 
in an industry where, frankly, it's like, you know, if if you're in a city where there's 10 escape rooms and someone's going to one, like the other nine are missing out. And I, I, I'm really constantly blown away about how they're always trying to provide solutions, both, you know, practical business solutions, but also ways that they can help each other's um, businesses thrive and grow in the rooms themselves. And I think what was really kind of interesting with a lot of the talks I attended were came down to two basic elements. One, I think uh, they were really about discussing like the kind of structure of the pieces and really kind of ex- elaborating and focusing on how we can uh, how they can heighten the audience's experience in that hour and what they can be doing with it both in the very kind of technical practical sense of it all where they are you know ensuring the safety of everyone who uh, uh, who attends to further just ways to heighten the theatrics, whether that's, you know, puzzles of the world or um, ways to kind of put narrative front and center. And I would say the other kind of really big thing I walked away with that I found interesting was how, like, we kind of, uh, I know Noah and I definitely get into it, but like, you know, where does the boundary of immersive theater end? Like how, uh, you know, we are inclusive and we welcome everything, but, you know, everyone loves to define things even outside of us and stuff like that. So like putting things in their each in their kind of own square. But I think what was really lovely is that there was a lot of escape room adjacent uh, elements that were attending recon. Cause there was a really great panel about tabletop escape games, which I think have exploded uh, because of the pandemic, because you can't go anywhere if you're, uh, lucky to be, you know, quarantining with other people. That's a great way to have a lovely afternoon or evening spent and puzzling and trying to figure out riddles. And then also, I think that they really kind of expanded in regards to the online market and really kind of uh, providing that to be a space and thinking, keeping a forward thinking eye on what that will become. But I, it was a really lovely time. And uh, props to them because i thought the talk the talks themselves were just so insightful uh whenever these drop publicly if they do i i cannot recommend them enough because i think there's just really great stuff about storytelling too like a puzzle is just a plot point right like in that kind of correlation between escape rooms and immersive theaters a puzzle is something you have to get through a plot point is something you have to track and keep uh keep keep track of in uh, immersive theater. So, I, you know, the parallels are there. And I think there's a lot of really great stuff the immersive theater community can learn from escape rooms. You mentioned you mentioned that, you know, there was there was tabletop and there was stuff about online. Were, were there any other big trends coming out of the talk? Like like some kind of like, you know, compass, you know, rose, north star, English failing me. Uh <laughs> Like, uh, no, I, I got yeah. you. I yeah, I I think there was um a very interesting trend that I think has strong parallels actually to a, a lot of the stuff we talk about to go over to the shelf and open up yet another can of worms. I know literally last week, you know, or the week before, we were talking about content warnings and like how much do you tell the audience up front 
uh, about what's going to happen when they come see an immersive experience. Do you give do you, do do you give it all away with like you know your your eleventh hour plot twist in your experience has some really grisly stuff, uh, whether that's uh, physical, emotional, or mental. Um, do you do you tip your hand? And I found in a lot of the conversations I was lucky to be a part of at Recon, the escape room for the physical practical spaces are really trying to figure out like are we going to keep using like like um records uh the, you know showcasing the escape rates like this room can be done in 30 minutes like is that still a selling point for us or are we trying to make a pivot to like uh easy and medium hard um you know th they seem to be in whether it's because of the pandemic, who's to say? Uh, I, I don't think so, because I think as they've kind of cemented themselves as a thing that almost nearly everyone can do, and there's escape rooms nation and worldwide, I think they're really at a kind of interesting crossroads about how do we convey this experience? How do we actually uh, ensure that we're getting everyone we want to come to the room like you know like as we've talked about like is saying something easy is that a problem is that going to scare away the enthusiasts or people who may be really looking for a challenge so i i really found those kind of discussions very intriguing especially with all the stuff we kind of constantly talk about yeah there's so oh, good blake go for it no, no, you go ahead. I had a question building off another element of the convention. Okay, so I'll 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 eat you in a second. Um, the this this dynamic here of sort of trying to figure out how to kind of market to a broader audience and what what sort of needs to be communicated. I mean, this is something that like every medium struggles with, um, and and it's it's definitely interesting to hear that. There's there's also concern around like you know well if we if we say that something's easy are we just going to like absolutely shut people out uh, who might be just running around looking for challenge because it assumes that like the hardcore and I think I think in escape rooms particularly for a long time because of that sort of like how quickly can you get out right um, it was marketing not solely but marketing heavily to the hardcore marketing to the people who are like hunting room to room to room agreed and 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 they're amazing as the vanguard and they they can book a room up for a very long time but the profitability on a room comes long after you're just like oh we're just in refurbish mode you know we we're, we've kept this we did the build and then we're just keeping people coming through and so then it becomes like well how fun is this and and the rooms that have a sort of replayability to them uh or are clever enough like i'm thinking of places like crossroads where they have a couple of games where that's down in orange county here in the southland there's like one game that's more of a social game like a social deduction game than it really is an escape room in some ways and so you can definitely have a different experience every time you go back with a different group of people and then there's another room that you know isolates everybody from the start and because of that uh you know you could go back a few times and so long as you're playing a different track you know there, that's more than reason enough to come back and it's it's definitely interesting to hear this dynamic is 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 reaching out farther 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I think as as we said, it's kind of interesting, like to, just the longevity. I think that's a really great point you make, Noah, in regards to that, because um, on that note, it's also what I really enjoyed about Recon was how how far people were coming uh, and how maybe for lack of a better word, a small some of these operations that were attending that like people who are truly doing regional work, like they're the only person within a hundred miles doing escape rooms. Um, like maybe they have a, 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 a business that only has one or two rooms and things like that. So really kind of that discussion of like, how do you keep the audience coming in and how do you keep them coming was interesting because they also talked about like just literally on the website, like how do we list these things? It got even that technical, some of these conversations, like, like, do we just do like the Amazon, here's a bunch of room listings you could do, or do we really try to curate this experience and get them into the best room for this audience that's coming and and then there's you know the challenge that comes in there with curation of i am not a person who cares a ton about spoilers but room escapes are kind of one of the only genres where a spoiler i find you know experience destroying and so there becomes, you know, a further challenge in curation. Th these discussions are really important as kind of room escape scalability becomes the question. Now that it's become, you know, a certified phenomena, the question becomes, how does this move from sort of a niche hobby that's here to stay to something like the movies that everyone does? Yeah, that's a really great point. Like, you know, like there's... I'm sure every for us here and all the listeners out there, like, yeah, like, you know, there's, of course, your big chain box, you know, multiplex movie theaters. But then I live within walking distance of a independent three screen um, theater that's like, you, you know, you go way back into the back of the building, then turn right to go into the theater because it's behind all the storefronts and stuff. And by by comparison to the multiplex, there's super tiny screens in that sense. So I think there's definitely like a room for everyone in that sense. And, and I guess it's funny. I think we are starting to get sort of the I almost want to call them the multiplexes of the escape room world. Um I am trying to remember the name of the escape room chain that I am thinking of. I mean, there's um, a few, there are there are definitely a few chains, right? So there's like, but there there's, there's one like, in particular that um, popped into head for me, which was Escapology, which hmm. has always been. I've done a few of their rooms. They've got a very standardized room set across the country. They are all of the rooms that I've done have been medium challenge, high production values, um, and you know, like the worst part of Universal Studios heavily focused on screens for a lot of the scene setting to enable sort of this growth and standardization. And so screens, not screams, right? So yes, screens. <laughs> so he'll, he um, will scream when he sees another screen. Oh, at okay. This place. When people say uh, universal, I flash on Halloween horror night. So I thought it might be screams, but no, oh, I, screams, I flash on that terrible new King Kong tram ride that they're trying to <laughs> shove down our throats, but yeah, I digress. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the point is, you know, I, I feel like we have created sort of, 
I almost want to say like the Marvel movie or the blockbuster mold for what is a generally palatable public escape room, what we're kind of going for there. And I think it's really interesting now as we're starting to see that diverge into kind of this more indie scene. And how do we communicate that divergence now that we're starting to get sub audiences? You know, can we can we call something an art house escape room? Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I, think, I think some people would call like the nest an art house escape room, for instance, like here here in LA, right? Mm-hmm. But I also but I also think like so much of this is because it's still it's still a lot of small businesses, right? Like there are some chains, you know, whether it's Escapology or Sixty Out or Five Wits, right? Like those those are a thing. Um, but it's also still a lot of small business owners, a lot of people with one, maybe two shops. And then when you think of multiplexes, like there, there are some places where what they've done is like a few of these small business owners have teamed up to buy to buy or lease a building. And they're like building out their brands inside the same spot because they can share an infrastructure. So, and then there's the kind of new growth of sort of the, escape room production companies a lot of them coming out of europe i know there's one major company in poland that are sort of they sell escape rooms for purchase sort of prefabricated to small businesses to operate that there you know there was one the game of stones sort of game of thrones knockoff room i I mean they've got that at a few locations but all Hmm. of those are being independently operated so you're seeing a lot of different sort of business models there even in terms of franchising and relation yeah that franchise model was with us from the start because you had i mean you had russian companies like maze rooms in la which was one of the first ones in la and i'm talking like way back when like they were the people like maze rooms and uh the basement were the two owners i went to when i did the npr story like nine moons ago um and i mean this was like super early on and they, you know, that was a, Maze Rooms was a, like a young Russian couple and they were getting a lot of their, their kit and their design. Just, there was, there was one, there was a Jumanji room that wasn't called Jumanji room. It was just called Jungle Game, but it was definitely based off a Russian game, like a game in Moscow that was called Jumanji. But like, that's just because they don't care about American copyright over there. Um, and we, we saw... Um, a lot of that fun fact the electronic locks failed on that one we for a minute got trapped for real we got us back up when we had to turn the breakers back on uh we forgave them we loved them uh it was great i think i was playing that with ilan lee of uh of exploding kittens so thank you well and on that note i would say the other interesting just very briefly and we can move on another interesting trend that maybe i'm reading too much into or i hope i'm reading the tea leaves correctly it sure seems like with a lot of the creators uh who were at recon that there seems to be a move to more like in world puzzles or um Mm. or uh thematically fitting puzzles uh that you know it's not like you walk into a room and for some reason uh the refrigerator has a padlock on it right like you know mine does I, well, what are you talking oh, about no. <laughs> oh well well <laughs> Do not depends, depends how much your roommates eat your 
Right. Yeah. That, well, yes. I, okay. Yeah. I, I suppose there could be valid reasons uh, why there is, but you know, it definitely seemed like a lot of people were interested in making sure the it wasn't a puzzle. The puzzles weren't there for puzzle's sake. They were there as part of the larger, dare I say, immersive aspect, the thematic aspects of the room. So hopefully if I, if I'm reading, as I said, if I'm paying attention correctly and if that's what I'm hearing, right. I, I, I'm really excited by that prospect. That is cool. Okay. We, we can, we could go round and round. There's like four more roads we could go from here, but, uh, we've been on this one for about 20 minutes and I believe next in the plan, uh, Originally, it was going to be go to Danielle, uh, uh, but uh, now instead Blake. And Blake, we don't even know. We we I think we know nothing about the piece you're you're bringing to us. What do you have? Sure, to, what do you have to sure say? thing. So happy to uh, unveil this mystery to the table. <laughs> this weekend, I was originally supposed to see the Grown Ups up in Brooklyn, but that got rained out because of the big hurricane. Um, and so on the way home, I was, you know, cursing to myself, God, I really wanted to do some live immersive this weekend outdoors. You know, I'm finally feeling comfortable enough for that. And then it came to me that on the way back away from the rain at the historic Glen Ford estate, the company formerly known as Cirque de Nuit, who at this event rebranded themselves as Altera Productions, were putting on an immersive gala production of A Midsummer Night's Dream to rechristen their company and to fundraise for their new season. And so I said, you know, oh, what the heck? I'm, I'm sure it'll be fun. I'm, I'm fond of their work. I liked Thicket a lot. And I am pleased to say I, I think I had the best time at an immersive thing I've had in a few months here. Um, my, I'll admit that part of that might be just the novelty of returning to being outside again. But... It was so much fun for just sort of a light, fluffy, immersive evening. Um, so all in all, it started just as it had the vibe of an outdoor wedding. Um, it was an attempt to sort of meld the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream with Art Nouveau and 1920s aesthetics that merged perfectly with this beautiful, gorgeous mansion on the Delaware River. They had most of the events set up in an outdoor tent, but they also had a few small wandering scenes around the grounds and within the mansion itself. Not formal one-on-ones per se, but you could wander off with an actor and there was enough going on that you could get intimate scenes very easily. It had a fantastic grazing table and a fantastic house cocktail, you know me, um, if if you've, you know, followed my opinions, you know I'm a sucker for in-world food and drink. Uh, and the way they presented all the hors d'oeuvres for the evening was with the most spectacular, overflowing, baroque wedding banquet table, just laden with meats and cheeses and huge bowls of fruit. Like, it looked like something out of you know, a, a still life. It was stunning. Um, it, it almost, almost was too pretty to eat, but I ate a ton of it. Um, and then the way they weaved 
sort of the immersive elements into the fundraising of the evening was a ton of fun. You know, for A Midsummer Night's Dream, they did Pyramus and Thisbe as a charity fundraiser in which the audience, as the play's benefactors, were able to pitch script edits that they would gamely improv along with it. Uh, they had, for the fairies, their... Um, a fellow company that they work pretty closely with, uh, Almanac Dance Circus Theater, they had all of sort of the, you know, no line or one line fairies as fabulous acrobats just doing sort of pulling people into one-on-ones for a little bit of light clowning, doing some pretty spectacular aerial work on some big aerial silks that served as a centerpiece for the tent. And... They managed to raise a lot of money and really launch what seems to be a spectacular new season. And, you know, on the one hand, and then I will totally open up the floor to any questions because I worry that I might be being a little vague just because I'm overwhelmed by how much fun I had. On the one hand, you know, it was pretty light, the experience. This was, it almost had the feeling of like a nice summer wedding with immersive elements, but the thing that to me really set it above and beyond was the way that it managed to balance sort of COVID safety with all of that. Um, The fact that they structured things so that if you were indoors, you were not in a large group. If you were in a large group, distance was maintained pretty spectacularly by rooting people around using different acts and different private interactions and by spreading people out over the tables. And that it seemed to be a really nice launching point for the rest of their season. Uh, They've got an upcoming show. They've got a huge um, agreement with this mansion who apparently likes them a lot. And now they're going to be doing a whole series over the course of the year there. The next of which is going to be an immersive horror dance show called The Poison Garden, uh, which they described in their program and advertisement as a little bit akin to sleep no more on a smaller scale. So I am very excited for that. So, well, and I, oh, I really ahead. quick, I, I just want to like, I, I, cause I've been looking at the website and I was watching a video and I think Blake, you are underselling by just saying this as a mansion. This is not a mansion. This is like an estate. It, it is, is an like, estate. There's this, grounds. There's a yacht marina. Um, they're planning sometime in the spring to have drag queens and lawn games. So there's going to be a big croquet party. It is like, it's like you've stepped into like the Great Gatsby or Downton Abbey or something. It is and where's stunning. So it's the, it's the Glen Ford estate and it is right. maybe... 10 minutes north of me on 95 from Philadelphia. I'm Philly. Oh, Philly. Okay. So like, and, and so you, you turned back around, you made it sound like you turned back around because of the hurricane and then just like drove over <laughs> like the same day. Yeah. Pretty much. So I was supposed to see, um, I was supposed to see my show in Brooklyn on Saturday night. I was having a burrito bowl in some kind of funky little place in Greenpoint with my friend. <laughs> And I get the email, you know, canceled, we'll let you know when it's coming back. So I said, okay, I'll just watch some TV with you and drive back in the morning. Not a problem. So I crashed on his sofa and got myself, you know, a donut from my old donut place in Queens. And then I'm driving home kind of in a bitter mood. And I, and I just said to myself, you know, th- this weekend could be, you know, 
no matter how much fun I had with my friends, this weekend could just kind of be low-key spent. Or, or, hello? You can pop, or you yeah. can pop, in, pop into the thing. Oh, yeah. sorry. My monitor just died, so I got oh, a little okay. worried for a second. <laughs> um, no. Um, or it could be this, you know, I could try to turn it around. And the minute yeah. I saw the clouds part as I was going down the Jersey Turnpike, I knew it was an omen. I actually talked to... Um, my friend Sid, who's in the audience right now. Hi, Sid. Um, and she said the exact same thing, that it was, you know, it was a little touch and go for a while coming down, but so worth it. Um, nice. It was a ton of fun. I'm really glad that I kind of pushed myself to to make something at the weekend with that. So, so, so before we move on, um, cause, cause mansions and Gatsby and, and, and COVID stuff is a perfect segue into what I've been up to. Um, cause I'm talking about a Gatsby thing, <laughs> um, that wasn't in a mansion. Uh, just, it was, it was like just a series of vignettes. So like, did it, did it have more of the feeling of like, kind of like a, uh, did you get a sense of like them trying to tie it all together with an overarching or was oh, this definitely. Really like it, oh, they did oh the vignettes definitely followed the overall plot structure of a midsummer night's dream okay and if you really wanted to you could basically follow a full with some shakespearean and some more colloquial language processional version of a midsummer night's dream breaking out across the grounds you know you'd, you'd see the lovers getting into their quarrels major scenes would occur in the tent uh, everyone would sort of gather for those. But then between those, you would have more just light circus acts or moments of quiet interaction or these more personal vignettes. Um, mm -hmm. And those are what really had more of the participatory elements while you had more just sort of the immersive and site-specific elements for the narrative track. And to be really specific in regards to the narrative, were they doing... Were they sticking to Shakespeare's script or was this just a general lifting and meandering through Midsummer in that sense? Like they weren't they weren't talking uh, in, in prose or anything and stuff like that. They were just it was just an, it was an update in the truly modern sense. It, it was fun. They they managed to, I think, strike a pretty good balance between the two. I think they made a really smart decision not sticking Shakespeare's script completely in that being forced to improvise in flowery Shakespearean dialogue in the immersive elements with breaking immersion would have been incredibly difficult. And they managed to keep those scenes fairly colloquial, but with sort of a little bit of a heightening, you know, we weren't going as far back as Shakespeare, but you know, maybe, maybe those scenes had a little bit of Oscar Wilde flavor Got it. on the, other hand, for some of these larger scenes, um, they did manage to keep some of the poetic language, which was really nice, um, especially in the ways that, because all of these people, they have a lot of trained sort of, you know, their original name was Cirque de Nuit. They had a lot of people who have really great circus artistry talent here. And the way they were able to kind of add a physicality and kinetic energy to a lot of the original Shakespearean language to make it feel modern really stood out as fun to me. All right. So it sounds like you're going to be headed back to as much of 
the what are they what what do they rebrand themselves? I nearly call them by their old name. Altera Productions now, Altera. and I can I can be super proud to admit that I couldn't help myself. I bid and won on a silent auction event, so I am going to be having with a few friends down in Philly a private haunted game night produced by them which seems to incorporate some immersive elements, some cocktails perhaps, and some circus acts. So Wow, those those clouds really did part for you at the Jersey <laughs> Turnpike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this I I am really looking forward to that and I should be booking that with them soon and I'm jumping out of my skin because I just got told that uh, Yannick Trapman O'Brien of Telelibrary fame will be our game master and host for the event. So I am that should be pretty incredibly fun for you. pumped. Yeah. But no, the event was great and I'll be going to everything Altera does down here. <laughs> Fantastic. Very, very good. Well, and then if I can get you to go to, to ones that make sense again and they're doing something, uh, I'll, I'll hurl you across the state uh, to Pittsburgh for when... Um, Oh my God! The company that's out there, uh, whose name just escaped me, who do the piece. Anyway, I just did the thing. So, <laughs> anyway, I have a car and I will travel. There is plenty of weird road trip stuff in Brickledge, uh, Brickledge, that's the name of the company. Oh, yeah. I know them. Yeah, I've heard really great things, and I'm really excited for that. They're amazing. It just makes me happy that there's like that there's there's a company that's like you know really pulling it pulling it off in philly and there's a company that's uh that's really pull it, that's been really pulling it off in pittsburgh so it's like pennsylvania everybody um i guess we're all <laughs> look for us in a year and a half we'll the, all move the, to pennsylvania yeah. the so, keystone hey, state of immersion it's it's a growing scene we've also got uh down here there. someone just jaden jaden bought a house and like jaden jaden's you know doing okay now but like a year ago wasn't so i'm like oh maybe maybe yeah maybe pennsylvania so you were saying gatsby now i'm curious to hear about your gatsby thing because i think i know which piece you're going to talk about i was reading about this one yeah so gatsby and uh an immersive illumination um, by loose change slash two cents theater company here as part of the hollywood fringe festival um, two cents uh, in each fringe usually does one or two immersive things, sometimes really big, ambitious things, sometimes kind of smaller things. They've been they've been hit and miss for me over the years. Um, like there's sometimes in their detail work, like some some good. Uh, I've seen some stuff. There's I think there was like a school one that I really just thought was a lot of fun. Like it was some of the puzzles were broken, but like it was just a blast to like run around and do. Um, and there was one that uh, this like there was a super ambitious one they did based on uh, uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland that some parts of it hit really well and other parts of it I was a little like ooh uh, structurally and even a couple of times I was just like oh, maybe this isn't like the right way to approach this part so but those were the previous things um, but I'm I guess I say all that to say I'm f- pretty familiar with the company. And from a fit and finish level, okay, so there's there's two roads here. One, this show, if it was presented in 2019, I would have been, I don't know if I would have been bowled over by, but I would have been like, this is a fine exemplar of, you know, immersive work, particularly immersive work at a fringe level. They 
have absorbed a lot of lessons from a lot of different folks. So the idea here is that they're doing a um, a blown out chapterized version of Gatsby, which uh, cribs a little bit from what the Speakeasy Society here in LA did with their Kansas collection piece, which kind of did a remix of the, you know, uh, the, the, the stories, the Oz stories. Uh, this is a little bit more of a straightforward adaptation of, of Scott Fitzgerald's work um, with a few tweaks that kind of like create this doubling effect of, you know, 1925 and 2021, because we've literally got almost exactly a hundred years between when the novel was published and our own time. And they, they zero in dramatur- dramaturgically on some elements that make it resonate a little too cleanly <laughs> in ways that are like gloriously <laughs> uncomfortable. And that is the fact that as I write in the piece uh, that's on the site, uh, Tom Buchanan, Buchanan is a racist, racist douchebag, like a straight up hideous human being uh, and he is in the novel, and he's the it, novel's protagonist in a way. Like, or we read the novel from him, right? It's been, no, no, no. no that's, that's Nick Carraway. Buchanan oh, is definitely you. the antagonist. He is Daisy's husband. So that's Nick, right. Nick hates him because Nick's in love with Daisy, and of course, Tom hates Gatsby. Because uh, right, right, know. right. So, uh, and the actor playing. Tom just nails it, <laughs> like nails it in a way where you're just like, oh, oh, this guy, holy crap. And he is at points, from what I can tell, just quoting the character from the book, but just really manages to nail it. And it it creates these kind of like cross time echoes um, and, and this just this casual cruelty that comes with a level of privilege. Sometimes when you encounter something that's an adaptation, you're a little bit of like, but why? Particularly with something like Gatsby. Like, unless you skipped school that week, we've all read it. And then a good number of people have either seen, like, the Redford version of it, (laughs) probably because their teachers showed it that week in class, or you've seen, if you're younger, maybe they showed you the DiCaprio version. But one way or another, it you know, if you want a Gatsby, it, it's it's out there. So I I want to laud them for finding the reason dramaturgically, dramaturgically, ugh, messing up that word, um, finding the reason to the, to do the piece, and that means zeroing in on some of the more uncomfortable parts of of who you know the antagonists are in this and they make make some choices that are gonna heighten that even more as they go on blake go for it i was gonna ask you said this was episodic so what kind of stretch did this one cover so it's it's the uh the dinner party um there's a dinner party that happens um and i think it also happens like in the book like it's basically like Nick going over Nick going over to see Tom and Daisy to see Daisy and having to deal with Tom right until him coming back to his house seeing Gatsby and getting a letter from Gatsby inviting him over like spoilers that's the full cycle of this and that's where it ends uh Nick's been invited over to Gatsby's house now one of the things they do here is 
they endow us with being the person of Nick. We're all addressed as Nick or as Mr. Caraway or whatever pet name Daisy has for us at that moment. Uh, and the actors will address us. There's also an actor playing Nick. So there's someone who's acting as our voice. And the way they handle that in the scenes where we are and he is, is that he'll speak, but the responses will be given to one of the members of the audience. Pretty, works pretty well, I'll just say. Um, not as well is the opening scene where we encounter Nick uh, and he gives us a monologue that basically like sets the frame. It runs a little too long. I know, ironic coming from me. Uh, it runs a little <laughs> too long. And I think it's a real missed opportunity to let us know that we are him. Like we're we're called Nick or Mr. Caraway at the check-in table. But then when he's dealing with us, it felt very performative. And I think there's things they could do in the staging of that scene that could make it very clear that he's talking to himself. And we're him. And it just feels like that was, and I don't usually give this kind of criticism because then it's like, oh, now let me direct the show. But it just feels like a really low-hanging fruit that they maybe didn't even see. And it particularly, because that scene goes on for so long, it, it becomes a little bit disorienting when then the other characters start referring to us as Nick. And I'm just like, well, why... <laughs> Why Why were we in that headspace already? I think the other thing about that scene is that there's about a dozen audience members. That scene was inside. We were masked. He and the the upright bass player uh, slash cellist were, were not uh, cellist. It was cellist, not bass player. Um, or maybe it was a bass. I can't tell. Anyway. They were sometimes they were plunking and sometimes they were they were strumming uh or stringing. So um they were unmasked and it was clear that some of the members of the audience uh and I, I just kind of kept back to kind of signal like I'm not I don't want you up in my face. Uh they were they were people would like pull back when he would approach. So it was clear not everyone was comfortable. And I don't fault anyone for not being comfortable. And I almost don't fault the company because when when they set this thing in motion, like two months ago, we didn't have a mask mandate here. So this thing was like conceived and planned and rehearsed under one set of conditions. And then the curveball hit. Where I think things are a bit dodgier for them is that we go from that scene to a scene outside. That's fine. And then from that scene to a scene back inside where they've set a dinner table and they've laid food out for everybody. And the implication, of course, is that it's real food and we can eat it. And like two people, both of whom were closer in boomer age than anyone else in the room, I want to point out, <laughs> were the only people I noticed eating. And I was like, hmm, YOLO boomers, it's a thing. Pretty much everyone else, I think maybe one person like pulled down for a second, like popped it in, then it was like, oh, going back on mask. Pretty much everyone else like didn't touch the food. And I just don't think. And to be clear, like it's like touch. Was there like even because I, I I've been looking at the the website and some of the press material. And it's like it, this ticket includes light fare and non-alcoholic beverages. Yes. And so like even beyond that, like you say, like there's food out. Like was there? Light fare. I mean, it's like it's but, 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 it's but like, like a was, pot sticker and like oh, but, was, okay. So there were toothpicks. And there was there was still 
a mindful sense of sanitary. Because honestly, it's like, oh my God, oh. there's just food on the table. No, 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 no. We each, it? we each, I mean, one, I'm not worried about touching things because like the film mics aren't so much. I'm, I'm just worried about ventilation, right? Like that's all right. I worry about these days. I walk into a place and like people are touching things like whatever, like let the raccoons come over and touch everything. Who cares? Right. Mm-hmm. Like what I'm worried about is like we were in a theater and the theater wasn't terribly ventilated and the actors were unmasked. And I'm just like, all this is a, this is a dice roll. Right now, yeah. everyone was checked for vaccination at the door. But Patrick, I remember your experience, right? You know, like yeah, back d- just just uh, uh, at the start of July, and I had I you know things were going down, things were better. I was fully vaccinated. We were all following CDC guidelines at the time, and like like when co- co- the pandemic first started, I think I had a. Uh, an early encounter with a breakthrough pandemic case, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so like this stuff is happening real and, and more and more often. It's happening more and more often. And we just don't have the counts on, on the stuff. So it's just one of those things like I, people weren't eating the food because people didn't want to take the mask off. And it just leads to the point of like, Oh, why bother having the food? I, I was going to say, this show sounds so painful for me. Food in an immersive is like my favorite thing. To, to have to have that be put in front of me and not feel comfortable touching it. Oh, it sounds like, you know, the cave of wonders, you know. <laughs> There's well, definitely a bit of that vibe to it, yeah. And when did the mask mandate start in LA? Like this, this wasn't, it's not yesterday, but it's been several weeks, right? It's, 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 it's definitely been several weeks. It was like mid-July. And I think there's still some ambiguity around like, should performers be masked or not? Um, you know, I kind of read it as like, oh, that's a bit of a choice. It's just for me, it's just like every, every element you put in, right. You know, it just like keeps on going. And I definitely did not want to be in a room. Like if I'm going to be eating indoors, which people still do. Right. And I've done like once since the mask mandate come up, cause that's just how the dice rolled. That was eating indoors with a friend at a really well-ventilated restaurant. And even then I was like, yeah, this isn't the best idea I've had in a while, but this is the only restaurant that's open. We're hungry. So it's like, here we go. Um, and annoyingly, they did not offer us outside. They're like, we'll sit you indoors. I'm like, oh boy. Okay, I guess here we go. Uh, but I know when I do that, it's like, okay, I'm picking up the dice. I'm picking up the dice and I'm tossing them and I'm hoping that it comes down not bad. Um a room with 12 people, not ventilated. I'm not even hungry. I don't know these people. That was the thing is like, I don't know these people. Like it's not worth it for me to risk taking the mask down. And I even know the masks aren't hundred percent, you know, like there's all kinds of things that could go wrong. Uh-huh. And that's a big thing is just like, ultimately if you're sitting there and you're thinking about that and you're not connecting with the piece, it's doing the piece a disservice. And also, they got to be wasting not a whole bunch of money, but like a, a decent amount of money on the food that people aren't eating. So, it so yeah. So anyway, belabored that point. Um, but then, like you know, the, the rest of the piece is pretty strong. You know, it's 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 really it's really well structured. It's it's a really big step forward for the company. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm like frustrated about this element is like. People aren't eating the food anyway. They could still stage the dinner party scene, just not have food and have, you know, people around, um, you know, even, you know, I, 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 would, I would even feel less weird about like, okay, the actors are on the table. The actors are unmasked. We're all sitting in front of like empty plates. 
that's fine. You know, um, and I think that's probably what, what they should do and where they should go, go with it. And I, but I think that the company's done. And, and again, I feel kind of bad for them because the rules keep changing. Um, everyone was, you know, checked at the door to make sure they had their vaccination or a recent negative COVID test. But as we know too well here, because of, you know, your exposure scare, like breakthroughs happen and it just feels like when it comes to people designing this stuff, it's almost like leave the, leave the, if you're indoors, leave the food out of it for now. <laughs> it's just, it's just too much. Yeah. And then, and then there, there we are talking about this and not talking about like the quality of the art and, and that's sort of the problem right now. Right. But I think that's, I mean, it's interesting because to backtail it really quick back to recon, it's like also clearly like, I would say online games are here to stay, right? Like the the market, they're not going to be, there might be less, less online escape rooms, but clearly for both the immediate future, but most likely for the long time, we're not going back to that. Like this is something we're all going to have to live with for a very long time. Like, uh, you know, like, I Oh think yeah. I have friends of, right now are saying like, we're going to be living with this for five years. Yeah. And that, and that mortifies me. Right. Like we're, we're trying to plan a summit in January and, you know, again, eight weeks ago, I, ha- I hosted a meetup at a bar and like almost like the very next week it was like, things are going wrong. And I'm like, damn it. You know, uh, I went, I went to area 15 and I went to Meow Wolf like later that week. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of unmasked people. <laughs> and then, you know, cut to the Delta variants of things. So how we're approaching this, how we're designing it, what we're asking people to do and what, what we understand, you know, mitigates things because I don't think it's, it's definitely not fair to like ask someone, you know, to like, Hey, risk your health to go enjoy yourself, you know, unless that's like an extreme sport thing, which is like, you know, expressly you're going to be doing that. Right. Right. For like risk your health to go enjoy an interactive performance. It's on some me that, the pandemic needs a good onboarding process. <laughs> we need we need to check in. We need to be provided very specific rules about what we're going to be doing for the rest of this immersive experience. Uh, and uh, please be followed. And if you need help, please find someone in the yellow yeah, T-shirt, we, we, and they'll uh, take care of you. We, we would have uh, we would have kicked a lot of people out of the show with no refund by this point. Let me just tell you. So. I don't oh, know. I mean, if we could if we could narrativize and gamify quarantine, then I think it would be a lot more palatable for a lot more people. I don't know, man. That's that's I don't know. That's that's a whole nother thing. Let's let's that's one I'm gonna say, let's not dig that one up. <laughs> All right. Well, this is fifty one minutes of our lives that uh we, we seemingly get people around for. That's amazing. Uh biggest audience we had in a while. So tell you what I'm gonna do. Um, we're gonna stick around here in the discord for a few minutes and then we'll break out and we'll record the pick of the week afterwards, but because we know we've got some folks here in the audience, 
uh, I want to go ahead and I will stop the review crew recording. So for those of you who are listening afterwards, uh, this is the end of the show. Uh, check back to see what the pick of the week was on the next instance here in the feed, which will be the main show. And then on Saturday, I'm going to finally drop that uh, extended version of the interview with Doug Jacobson of uh, BRCVR because uh, uh, Black Rock City uh, is emerging again in alt space over this weekend. So it's the perfect accompaniment to that. Also, I ran out of time to do it today. So um, that's what's up with that. And uh, we will see you in the feed soon enough.